Michael and I have <clears throat> done our very best, I think, uh, to be patient and as thorough and caring as we can be in the groups and when we see you in other situations. And I'd like to just simply, to begin with, mention that two teachers, one extremely important to me, one extremely important to Michael, died this in February. People who, if uh, there was any anything the good that came out of our attention to you, if any of, any of it rubbed off from these teachers onto us, and then some of it perhaps rubbed off onto you, and then when you go home, maybe some of it will rubbed off rub off on the people in your life. Uh, for Michael, it was Master Sheng Yan, a Chinese teacher whose main temple is in Taiwan, who died just a few weeks ago. And for myself, it was a, an Indian gentleman named Jay Krishnamurti, who died in 1986, but I always, also in February, they died within a few days of each other, clearly years separated. And it just simply, we are grateful to them and just wanted to, I guess, dedicate. I'm not much, I know there's merit, it's a Buddhist concept, I don't know if that's true or not. I'm too cynical. But I do know, I'm not cynical about being grateful, and I know Michael isn't either. So uh, we want to dedicate any, uh, this uh, retreat to them. Uh, we left off. Yes, we were in the palace. <laughs> and uh, the first assignment, as you recall, is that uh, this person who came to this king, who was also uh, a highly awakened yogi, wanted to know how to do it, and the king uh, sent him through each room in the palace with a pot of hot oil on his head, the instructions being not to spill any, and he came back successfully. Um, that would be comparable to what we've been doing for the first few days, uh, samadhi practice, where we take one thing and we come back to it again and again and again. We give exclusive attention to it. It could be a mantra, it could be the breath, it could be metta, it could be the whole body breathing as we've been suggesting, and certain visualizations. Uh, but you take a meditation theme and the commitment is to that, to that theme. And all else is let go of, and you come back to it again and again. Um, if you do that, what tends to happen is you become absorbed in the object. You sink deeper and deeper into it. And this absorption brings with it many benefits. So even if this person had never uh, gone back, if you recall, the king said, okay, now go and let me know what's going on in the palace, affairs, plots to overthrow me, etc." person couldn't do it the first time. Uh, in concentration practice or samadhi practice, <clears throat> in the absorption, 
what happens is you sink deeper and deeper into consciousness. And with that comes, can come, an extraordinary peace and joy. And many, many benefits, healing benefits, come along with that. Um, it has quite a bit of depth uh, and is valuable. Uh, it's part of all Buddhist meditation training, is this aspect of training. And what kind of benefits could they have and what kind of limitations? Why does the king not just say, great, you're done? Uh, because, <clears throat> well, the benefits can be improvements in health. Sometimes psychic powers come, if you want that. Uh, probably you would, wouldn't you? For example, <laughs> much more important than compassion and wisdom. <laughs> For example, supposing I could levitate right now. You know, really, le wouldn't you be incredibly impressed? And then from here on in, every time that I taught, thousands of people would be packed in here. Larry King would interview me on his program. You would talk to all your friends. I'd be wealthy. Be great. But I'd still be, I'd just be a wealthy fool. Because there's no wisdom that comes with that. That's power. And in fact, the Buddha was at one point questioned about that and said, supposedly you have full psychic powers but you never teach it to us. How come? And the Buddha said it would be like being a very bad, poor physician who cures you from a minor ailment only to have you die from a major ailment. Because all that I'm teaching is wisdom, suffering and the end of suffering. But I know my beginning days, some of my first teachers, one in particular, well, we were, my generation, we were really much more impressed with uh, flashier things like power, uh, and if I saw someone levitating, I would not really care very much about anything else. That would be enough. Fortunately, I didn't. Um, <clears throat> so there's lots that comes from it. There's joy, there's peace, the nervous system is strengthened. Uh, there's a certain inspiration that can come. You realize, whoa, this stuff is, it works. There's something good here. I think I'll keep doing it. Um, <clears throat> the mind, the quality of the mind, a new skill is learned. Uh, a certain kind of happiness can sum it all up. But what happens is there's a, a peace that comes from being absorbed in, let's say, in our case, the breath and the body. And while you're absorbed, everything else goes into abeyance. Uh, any of your problems that, me, that you may have, anything that's unresolved, uh, issues that you might have, fears, loneliness, and so forth, that just goes into abeyance it isn't dealt with. It's like uh, you give a child who's naughty a nice new toy and they become absorbed in it. And then as soon as they lose interest, they're naughty again. Or you don't need a child, we do it. You know, we just uh, find something to become absorbed in a good film, a good book. Uh, and during that period of absorption, there's no or minimal suffering because our mind is taken away from what we haven't really dealt with, the, th the aspects of our consciousness that are challenging to us, that we're afraid of, that have not been clearly understood, that keep us enslaved. So sometimes the peace that comes from uh, that first meditative attainment, quite valuable, 
to whatever degree you attain it. And it's lawful, by the way. If you do it, you will certainly experience some benefits, and I know many of you, maybe all of you have already. Um, <clears throat> if you do it and you start to experience some of these benefits, um, what can happen is that you then become enthralled with them. And you're not really interested in wisdom or compassion. Who cares about that? I'm just really happy doing this. But you haven't fully dealt with what has gone into abeyance, what has temporarily uh, been left behind. It hasn't gone away, maybe weakened a wee bit, because you haven't been identifying, attaching, and, and pouring <coughs> energy and nourishing some of these tendencies that we have. Um, so that's a useful skill, because when you come out of it, uh, the mind is more fit, it's more stable, it's more calm, it's more clear, it can be. Are there dangers there? Yes. The stillness that comes there is sometimes called stillness with delusion. It's fragile. It has, it's limited if you don't understand how to use it. If you understand how to use it, it's precious. Uh, not understanding how to use it is when we become very, very attached to it. It's, I don't know anyone who has tasted some degree of it who has not gotten attached. I know I have. And if you have somebody who's already been through it, first of all, you'll see that it doesn't last. It's impermanent. And then there'll be suffering because you'll want to, where is it? And you'll want to get it back and you'll scurry to your cushion or chair or bench. And you don't get it back. And there's suffering. Or it doesn't last as long as you want it to. Now, uh, if you have a teacher who guides you, or you can, you can guide yourself, you begin to see that as valuable as this is, it has its certain limitations. And so you value it for what it can do, but you don't overestimate it. So that kind of stillness is fragile and limited and helpful, very, very helpful. Because, and so that's the first journey that this person made through the palace. When the king sends uh, him back, and now don't lose that oil, don't spill it, but now tell me what's going on. That's when we're getting the second mode of instructions. I know that the comparison may be a little crude, but bear with me. If there are any philosophers, logicians, and lawyers, and you know, usually you'll find, well, wait a minute, that it doesn't hold up. I don't see the example as being, please don't do that. <laughs> you know. uh, it's just a rough, it, you know, it's just playful. Um, <clears throat> so now the challenge is knowing, valuing that steadiness of mind and understanding its limits, that you have not dealt with fear, with loneliness, etc. Um, but your mind is now equipped to go through all the rooms of the palace and now take a look. Of course, the palace is us. It's our mind. And in the second mode of instruction, when we suggest just sit and breathe and just be open to whatever turns up. The instructions in that sense have no agenda. You're just sitting. You're sitting and by not having an agenda, it's an invitation for whatever is there to start to surface. And sometimes what surfaces is very, rather ordinary, familiar, and sometimes what surfaces and visits you is completely unwanted. But the power of the practice is this allowing, this letting, ha letting it happen. 
We've been learning that with the breathing. By not controlling the breath, I believe we have emphasized that, simply letting the breath breathe itself, we're beginning to learn the art of allowing and then to receive it as it happens. Most of us, for all I know, all of us, we've had a lot of practice doing, controlling, directing. And when we hear words like, just let it happen, allow, it sounds like fatalism, passivity, and a waste of time. And certainly, we want to change, we want to improve, we want to get somewhere. We want to leave here at the end of the five days, get our money's worth, and be whatever you came to solve. Many of you have acknowledged that you came with an agenda. Okay. Here, we're just saying the agenda is just to just sit and to allow everything to surface, to be there for as long as it's there. And when it, on its own, when the lawfulness of it uh, is such that its time is gone, it's gone. Now, how to be there with it? And this is the art of, of observation, of mindfulness. Actually, mindfulness is remembering to turn to what's happening. For example, mindfulness of the breath is remembering to turn to the breath. Uh, in the Thai forest tradition, they have a nice term, I found it very helpful, called satipanya, which means mindfulness with discernment. The mindfulness is essential. That's the attention. Sometimes when we say attention or awareness, we really mean both, all of it. That means a steady, alert, clear mind that's interested in learning about what it sees. Uh, but you can also have these two terms. So the, the sati is being with what happens, allowing it to run its course, not controlling it, not directing it, learning how to do that. Now, when, sometimes what comes up is not what we want to be there. And I'm intentionally going to use a very positive term, uh, communion, to enter into communion. Would you, do you want to enter into communion with fear? Fear communion is typically, oh, entering into communion with nature, that, or beautiful things, or with even with a person that you love. But enter communion with fear? Well, that's what's being asked of us. Practice is not pulling back and with a pair of binoculars from a mountaintop looking at fear. Now, you may have to start that way, but more and more, the art of seeing is very, very different. It's, see, detachment and attachment, in a sense, go together. It's a kind of struggle. One is you're holding on, the other is you're pulling back so that you don't hold on, and you're trying to look at it from that point of view. Non-attachment, which is what we're talking about, is simply, and this is a, the, the direction that Vipassana meditation takes, it's learning how to uh, widen your capacity to receive your own experience, not someone else's, your own experience. It's, it's all you. The awareness is you. If it's fear, it's you, etc. Opening up to it, receiving it, allowing it to happen in the way in which it happens, so there's intimacy involved. There's no, we're not judging it. We're not interpreting it. We're not analyzing it. We're not classifying it. We're not explaining it. Moreover, in clear seeing, we're not seeing in order to get free of fear, if it's fear that we're talking about. Because if you're watching with a motive, then part of your, your seeing is compromised. In other words, you're waiting for a result. We're seeing in order to see. Now here, you have to surrender to this because the instructions do sound like there's no dynamic force there. 
So you have to do it once you do it, and it's an art that takes a while to refine. Maybe the refinement goes on forever, where you actually, I, it, it can get to the point where there's no effort whatsoever. Um, in breathing, just awareness of breathing, forget about the rest of the rooms in the palace and what's going on, just pure awareness of breathing, there can come a state where it's, there's breathing is happening, but there's no breather. There's absolutely no control. You disappear. There's no observer, and yet there's the clearest seeing that's possible because there's no, no observer. The observer is, is me with all of my psychic baggage watching. That's how we begin. We can't help it. Okay. And uh, it's a stage in breath awareness practice where you just feel breathed, and it's quite glorious. Okay, so we're learning how to allow, uh, in a sense, our consciousness to reveal itself, to tell its story. And when we do that, what tends to happen is consciousness empties itself of its content. Just naturally, it's not throwing anything out. It just empties it. Now, in a moment, I'm going to connect this to the Buddhist teaching. Um, but the clearer the seeing, the more this process, this dynamic being present, uh, the more dynamic uh, effectiveness is there that happens. Um, so what would, when we say clear seeing, it's the art of, clear ob of pure observation. What do we mean by that? To begin with, it isn't. We all start and we're seeing through yesterday's eyes. We've been conditioned by the culture that we've grown up in, our personal experiences, our wounds, our successes, our failures. In a sense, each one of us has thousands of years of human culture that's coded into us, our version of it, and then we shape it a bit through our unique life. And to begin with, we're looking and we, it feels like we're being objective, but it's colored by our psychic, uh, by our psyches. So it's through yesterday's eyes. It isn't fresh and clear. The Chinese use an image of a clear of mirror. And the practice, in this sense, is dusting off the mirror. So there's a lot of dust to begin with, but we have to do the best we can. We have to start where we are. Little by little, the psychic part falls away. And you can tell the difference because things become more vivid and a certain kind of subtle nuance, uh, understanding that comes from nuances becomes apparent. And, it, and you can feel the practice is coming to life, which is another way of saying is that life is coming to life because you're more fully there. You're more intimate with your experience. And yet there's still something uh, separating us from our experience, and that's me, the observer, the, the yogi, the mindfulness, the, mindfulness, the person being mindful, the meditator. In fact, this deepest form of meditation starts when the meditator ends. So we have to start with the meditator. That's each one of us. But uh, the meditator is really the ego. It's still me, the big fat ego. It's camouflaged as a yogi, which sounds good and different. But it's still the ego. And it's the good ego that wants to be egoless. The ego is shameless. So if you say, now I'm not interested in sex, money, power. I just want to be nothing. And the ego says, what do I care? I'm shameless. You want to be nothing? I'll, I'll be nothing. 
as long as I, that means I reign supreme, right? I'll be the biggest nothing at IMS. Okay. Uh, so it's, a, it's subtle. And as the attention becomes steadier, when you're really fully aware, you may find, and uh, we have our moments in life without any of all this instruction that, that's being given this evening, where when we're fully attentive, we aren't there. And that's why it's some aesthetic experiences with the arts, with nature, music, beauty. Sometimes when we're fully immersed in something, part of why it's so beautiful is that sex, making love, is that temporarily we're not there. That's why things are so great, because we're the problem. So we got to get rid of, in this case, the observer. But you can't kill the observer, because if you, it's like Hydra. You cut off one head, is another one. He said, fine, you want to kill the ego? Fine, I'll do that too. I'll be the, whatever you want. The ego is shameless. Brilliant. Einstein's a moron compared to your ego and my ego. Really, it wants to survive. Okay. But little, so there are moments when we, when we, when we see that it's so beautiful to just uh, be with what's happening. And we learn uh, how precious that is. And then we lose it. And then we get it little by little. Um, another way of saying, of putting what, I, what I've been saying is that the mind becomes very quiet, silent. Now, when modern people hear silence, we don't value it. Because we think of being alive is when we're thinking and doing, running here, piling this, uh, acquiring things. We've used the term, for example, what was also mentioned is the urgency of self-discovery. Self-knowing. I prefer that term. Um, and by the way, you'll see in a moment that self-discovery may disappoint some of you who are very new. Uh, self-knowing, re re there's an ing at the end of it. That means it's not self-knowledge, which is a much more a term that we're much more familiar with. That is an acquisition. That's like knowledge. Like any, you add more. So that let's say you see something about yourself. And then are any of you... You don't have to tell me, because there's always a, a criminal subculture on every retreat. <laughs> you know, you're probably up in your room taking notes, the story of me and my life, my insights, and then you'll come home. I don't know, maybe you write a book about it. This, okay, don't mention our names, all right? <laughs> okay, so we accumulate all these insights that I got at IMS in whenever, February, March, and that's just adding to the story, which the ego loves, because that's what, it's the story of the ego, me. Great. Take all the notes you want. <laughs> okay. And that is, so it's like knowledge. And there's a place for knowledge, obviously. But in this, in the liberation approach, knowledge is, an, uh, to a point, it's helpful. And it, for example, there's, there's Dharma knowledge, teachings, which are uh, precious. They, they point in the right direction, they inspire us, and they guide us. And at a certain point, we have to leave it behind. It becomes an obstacle, a real obstacle. Um, so in leaving that behind, um, self-knowing, in a moment when you see something, let's say you see a way in which you're clinging, and because you're clinging, uh, you're suffering. And you really see it in that moment. You see, 
just what's happening. The value of that moment seeing, the, that moment seeing, is in that moment and then throw it, it's gone. Don't write it in your spiral notebook. What was valuable is that uh, there's a knowing. It's not, a, it's not something you acquire. It's not something you add on and then make a, a, more of a story or revise the story you already have. Its value is in that moment. It's fresh, it's clear, and uh, there's, if there's, in the real seeing, there's no attachment. There's just seeing, and that's a kind of learning that goes on, and it's a moment of freedom. Okay, so self-knowing is that. Now, um, let's bring all those construction workers into the palace. Uh, maybe they can find something to fix in the palace. I don't know. I'm sure they can. Uh, when Michael told that story, he brought it back. I remembered it, and uh, it was quite a challenge. Uh, be so that how could any of this, let, let's translate what happened in these terms. You come to a retreat center in the country. It's only natural to expect it to be silent, of course. Uh, and to all the conditions to be conducive, outer silence, nature, simplicity, etc., and that helps us get to the, to the inner silence, which is finally what this is all about. Um, and then suddenly this crew turns up, and here are all this unexpected stuff happening, and there's a lot of suffering. Now, to make a long story short, um, there's a Dharma teaching which says, a bad situation is a good situation. I got a note from someone when I said, apparently didn't, someone didn't like when I said, I hope you do get a yogi job that you don't like because it's far more valuable. Uh, because that's what I mean. That pushes your buttons. And it gives you an opportunity to get free of, some, of something like we had an oral surgeon who came here some years ago. And he was assigned toilets, cleaning toilets. He wouldn't do it. Now, I, so he went to the office, and he told them, I, I'm just not going to do it. And they, they tried every which way to get him to do it. He wouldn't. Finally, they, they sent him up to me. <laughs> no, this, this, this is a true story. And so he came up, and he, and he said, they said that this is an important part of the retreat. And I, uh, I said, what? And he said, well, I was assigned cleaning uh, toilets, and, and I'm an oral surgeon. I didn't come up here to clean toilets. And, and I said, well, uh, do you have any health reason for not doing it? He said, no. I said, well, why don't you do it then? It's, in effect, it's beneath me. Okay, so I said, well, you see, that's part of the training, so you have to do it. You know, so he said, uh, you can't be serious. So I said, no, I, I am very serious. And I said, because you have to do it or you'll have to leave the retreat. And he laughed. He said, you really don't mean that, do you? And I said, I do. You have to leave the retreat. Now, what prompted us to do this is I discovered years ago that people would come up to the retreat center, to IMS, hours in advance to get, they would pick their jobs. Now it's random, unless you have a medical reason. You get whatever, is, whatever you pick, whatever you, whatever you get to whatever you're given, that's what you do. And people would come two and three hours early, so there used to be a library where the officers so they could just dust the books, which would take about 11 seconds. <laughs> and then there'd be other people in the boiler room cleaning pots, you know, with sweating, you know, <laughs> with bandanas around their head, you know, and just uh, out of some bad uh, movie, you know, and just, and, and 
being annoyed, their, their friend who was just dusting books off went around the loop, had a good time sun, sunbathing, and you're still cleaning pots, you know. So uh, I didn't make this up. I learned this in, in, uh, when I lived in, in Korea and Japan. In monastic life, it's a given. It, comes, it started in ancient China, in Chan, uh, where that's part of the training. Everything is. In other words, life is, in a sense, um, life is here to set us free if we know how to enter into a new relationship with it. So that the bad situation is a good situation, but it's a, a radically different way of relating to it. So um, he did do it, this, back to this oral surgeon gentleman. Uh, and at the end of the retreat, this does have a happy ending. It's a nice one. Once in a while it does. Uh, and he came and he said he saw through exactly what it was. You know, that it was all about prestige and status and his own self-image, and that by the end of the retreat, the last few days, it was not a problem, and uh, it was no. It was, and he felt lighter. And I said, "That's why we do it. Meditation isn't just on the cushion." So the people we turned that construction site around, and that required that uh, not just a concentrated mind, but a mind that could see the reaction, in other words, see you more as a full person, and seeing that it, you had an expectation. It was thwarted. It isn't silent. This shouldn't be happening, but it is. Now, the choice is go home, disband the retreat, uh, kick these guys out. But we made the choice to turn it into a practice. And in this instance, it worked. I, as far as we know, everyone, it was very beneficial. People saw the challenge. It was only a couple of days, but it was not easy at times. So you can see that this is a different, it's a radically different attitude. Self-discovery is every time you're in relationship to anything, a person, nature, objects, money, construction workers, you tell me. We have a reaction. So relationship is a kind of a mirror. It shows you something about yourself. Now, if, you're, if you take it on as learning, if you understand that what the Buddha is saying, put in other terms, is human race, this is paraphrasing it, human race, you don't seem to know how to live. Let me give you a few hints, hints for God's sakes. I wouldn't say for God's sakes. <laughs> but he said, let, let me give you a few hints. And, and the teachings came out of that. Because the truth is, it doesn't seem as if we do know how to live with each other, certainly. And so it requires a whole new way of relating to our experience. And one which, at least for some people who'd, who've done it and do it, has proven itself to be beneficial. But if you're new to this, you're hearing me say this. You heard Michael say it. You have to find out for yourself if it's true. Because I would not trust Michael or me. We're in the business. We're not to be trusted. We're selling used cars. So of course we're going to be saying it. Old used cars. Almost 3,000 years old. Bullock carts. OK. Um, In the Buddhist schema, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness are mindfulness of the body. And we did a lot of that the first few days, just being with the body. And we, that is, and it's fr one translation is the body in the body. It's a strange English way of putting it in the English language. But what it means is intimate with bodily life 
It means there's no mind aspect in it. It's just the pure, raw, naked sensations of bodily life. The second one is feelings. Whenever anything enters any of our sense doors, like the sound that came in during the construction site, that uh, entered our ear and it was unpleasant. Then the mind kicked in. First of all, we turned it into noise. It was just sound. And the mind didn't like it because it shouldn't be happening. And then once the mind enters, then something that's unpleasant, it wasn't a beautiful sound, can become torment. And so wisdom is seeing that. It's seeing the tremendous power that the mind has when it's not understood, when it's not clearly seeing, seen and understood. So you can see how self-discovery, paying attention, helps liberate us from ourselves, from our, our own unexamined mind. And uh, it's the odd thing still for me after all these years is that we are our chief tormentor and we're the ones who can liberate ourselves. And everything that's happening in the world to us, if we change our perspective, and of course you do need training because if the mind doesn't have some of the strength, the inner strength that comes from the concentration, it's very difficult to look at some of these mind states. Very, very difficult. But it can be learned. It's, it's, for, it's not out of our reach. All of us have that capacity. We can uh, enable the mind to be uh, steady, clear enough, so that more and more it learns how to look at what it perhaps never wanted to look at, and maybe never will. But we can do it. And in doing it, it our, our life changes. So there's the body, there's feelings. The third foundation that the Buddha, this is the core of all Buddhist meditation is the mind itself. And of course, that's the big one. And in the Buddhist scheme of things, uh, there are three, three th kinds of mind states that are especially important um, because, they're so, because they cause a lot of suffering when we don't understand them. One is the wanting mind, maybe popularly called greed. The mind that endlessly wants, 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 never has enough, insatiable. It, uh, it's sometimes viewed as like a person with a tiny little mouth. It, it's a, one of the realms, of, I don't know, hell realm or in, 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 the, in the Buddhist scheme, where the person has a huge tummy and a tiny little mouth, so they're never satisfied because they can only get a little bit of food in, and there's this huge tummy that just wants more food. So no matter what we get, we need more. Is that familiar? Is that unrelated to what's going on in the world today on a, on a, on a macro scale, all the countries? Okay, now, then the other is the, the wanting mind, the, the second, and their children. They're all these subtle children of that, is the, the not wanting mind, the aversive, aggressive, violent mind that is trying to get rid of things, kill things, avoid things. Those two make up a lot of life. And of course, the third is, is the soil out of which the first two come from. And that's often called delusion or ignorance. I prefer ignorance, but delusion could be, is certainly not uh, exempt from that. Ignorance has a number of very, uh, I think, beautiful nuances. One is ignorant of our full potential. Okay, and I can see my full potential is not going to be realized tonight. So have to be, does the Reader's Digest still exist? You know, it's kind of a condensed, it used to be when I was growing up, and anyway, this will be the Reader's Digest version of the teaching. 
Um, ignorance of our full potential. When we enter into the silence, and typically we don't feel that's valuable, either we're afraid of it or we don't value it. And we say, well, nothing's happening. No, silence is happening. And we have to learn how if silence is there in this set of instructions. So we have the body, we have feelings, we have the mind itself, uh, the mind when it's confused, the mind when it, uh, one of the meanings of, of ignorance is, is um, we're ignorant of the skills necessary to live intelligently, wisely, with kindness. We don't know how to take care of ourselves and the situations that we find ourselves in. We have formulas that have been given to us, and sometimes they work a bit, but not so much. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Okay, so wisdom is really the antidote, the medicine for that. Um, the Four Noble Truths, I'm not going to go into that, uh, is understanding the teaching, so it's from a Buddhist point of view, uh, cause and effect, understanding that everything we do has consequences. Okay, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is, uh, in a sense, the, the lawfulness underlining, underlying the body, feelings, and the mind. That is, the, 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 the first one is, and so much flows from it, is anicca, impermanence. If you look at any aspect of bodily life, it's constantly changing. And it changes in an uncertain way, not necessarily the way we want it to. Now, the most obvious, that it ages, it grows ill, and it, and it dies. But there, every moment, the body's alive, and of course its nature is to keep changing. Then when we get to feelings, that keeps changing as well. Mind states, endlessly changing. Now, sometimes uh, the mind is not dominated by, uh, by greed, by, the, by wanting, but actually by generosity. In other words, there are wonderful qualities in the mind, too. It's not saying that it's all bad news. Uh, and it's not all aversive and angry and aggressive. There can be love and compassion and generosity. And with the mind is not always ignorant. Now, what we're trying to do here and in every place that is a wisdom path is try to bring some light into ourselves, but not merely as a poetic metaphor, but actually by looking at mainly what we're looking at is ignorance. We're seeing our suffering and how we make it if we can learn to do that. And so as we, uh, so, so that the sitting practice, to view that, that, those two steps, sitting and breathing, to establish the mind so it's a, a bit more calm, a bit more steady, and then opening it up, and then we watch uh, conditions of the body, different kinds of sensations, feelings, and all the different mind states, they come and go, independent of content, it all arises and passes away. And as, we, and as we more and more are able to see that, it becomes so much easier to not get caught. Because you realize that's, it's lawful. Nothing can stay. And yet we're, we're, we get fixated, either on holding or on pushing away. And as you start, if you, if you can learn from what you see, from your awareness, you begin to see that there's no point to it. Uh, Michael, uh, you can, there's also flexibility here. You can take one element out of all this, like sound. You had some practice listening. Very helpful, important. You can also sometimes, if your mind feels calm, uh, just sit and breathe, or, or just sit, and be aware of thinking. And when you start seeing that all thoughts come and go, they're all impermanent, your relationship to thought will change forever. 
because ignorance is we impute to thought a reality it doesn't have. New bumper stickers in Cambridge. There used to be, I'd rather be playing tennis, I'd rather be skiing. It's gotten upgraded. There's one now that says, don't believe everything you think. I, if the driver of that car is putting that into action, they don't need to come here. Because so much suffering comes from, we do believe m much of what we think. Okay, so um, you can see now, this is the kind of mind we're developing as we go through the palace. It's our own mind. So the urgency of self-discovery, uh, and here's the part I said some of you might be disappointed. When we hear about self-discovery, self-knowledge, self-knowing, we tend to think it's uh, gaining clarification on the story of our life, just the common sense understanding of self-knowledge. Of self, uh, uh, and it's very useful. We find out things about our personality, our likes, our dislikes, and that it comes along with meditation practice. And sometimes it's called self-improvement. There's so many different programs now, wherever you look, magazines and workshops. A lot of that, maybe most of it, is self-improvement. That is polishing, refining, fixing up the ego, making it a little bit kinder, a little bit gentler, more generous, less cruel. But it's still, um, it's what the ancients said, it's in a sense, I'm paraphrasing, it's uh, kind of bringing an interior decorator into your jail cell and fixing it up nicely, <laughs> you know, and trading in the old bars for silver bars, okay? And maybe getting a uh, high-definition TV set in the prison, in the jail cell, okay? So when you, uh, and a lot of what people think meditation is, is self-improvement, which really, as, if that's it, it's what it really is, is self-expansion. We're trying to improve and get a bigger ego, a better ego, a kinder ego, but it's still, it's still the same framework. And in, in this sense, we're strengthening, and in the short run it may feel good and it may be interesting, we're strengthening the very source of our suffering it, from, a, from an ultimate point of view. Uh, that's why when Dogen, the great Japanese master, says, Buddha Dharma, to study Buddha Dharma, in other words, the Buddha's way, this kind of teaching, is to study the self, to study yourself. Or it sometimes also has meanings of to learn about yourself, to become intimate with yourself. To, to study Buddha Dharma, uh, to study Buddha Dharma is to get to know the self. To get to know the self is to forget the self. This is the part where you may get disappointed. Self-discovery is you find out that what you thought was a self, as you look at it carefully, it ain't. It's a process. There's nothing solid that you can grab onto. And you watch, and one minute you're Adolf Hitler, the next minute you're, uh, you're Jesus Christ, the third minute you're Mother Teresa, then you go back to whoever, and it's just a process coming and going. The illusion is that there's someone solid, substantial, enduring, to whom everything is happening. And when you really watch your mind, I'm not putting forth an ideology now, a Buddhist teaching of anatta, not self, watch it. You'll see that it's a process. And there's nothing you could point to and say, this is me, because it keeps changing. And it's contradictory, it's impermanent. And so at a certain point, as the letting go happens, you start to see that none of it is you. So finally, self-knowledge, self-knowing, is finding out who you aren't, not who you are. 
because you aren't any of the things you think you are. None of them. They're just ideas, they're notions, they're representations, they're objectifications. And as that falls away, falls away, falls away, falls away, well, then what's left? That's what we have to find out. I'm going to leave you since I, uh, I was speaking on behalf of Michael and I. I'm going to give you a Krishnamurti story. It's actually the last time I saw him. He died a few months after this. We were in New York City. And this will give you, I hope, stays with you a little bit. It's always stayed with me. Uh, of its changed attitude of a bad situation is a good situation. Uh, we were in New York, and he would have sometimes small study practice. I don't know what to call it. There would be like eight of us, and we'd be together for a week. We'd meet for two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, and there'd be a theme. This, at this time, I think the theme was fear. Uh, anyone love to be terrified, frightened? I don't think so. Okay. So we were exploring it uh, with his guidance for a whole week together, and uh, it was very rich. Uh, and then there's about a half an hour left on Friday when we're all going in separate directions. He's going to fly back to California. And suddenly we feel he was about, he died at 91. He must, so he was about late 90s. We and he, suddenly we, feel, we figure the old man, is, is, his trolley has gone off the track. He starts talking about jewelry. He starts saying, this afternoon my friends took me, there's a break between morning and afternoon, to one of the top jewelry stores in New York. And I had in my hands one of the most beautiful jewels uh, on earth. And I looked at it, and I saw the way it was cut and the way light was refracted. And uh, he went on. I don't have the vocabulary. Some of you can do better. He went on and on. We figured, he's lost it. What does this have to do with what we've been talking about all week? And he's holding it like that. And he said, and it was so exquisite. I watched every little aspect of it and finally went into it, through it, and then he took the jewel and he threw it out and he said, fear is that jewel. And then he walked out and left us there. You know, like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, because all the energy that's trapped in those mind states that we don't want, emotional states, there's so much energy trapped there. There's so much energy squandered and wasted. So it is a jewel in that when we open to it, receive it, and let it unwind, uh, that energy gets liberated, and then, then it's ours to use as we see fit. Can we have a few moments of silence, please? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Okay, some meditation as we walk. 